Welcome to Exodus 4. Would you pray with me? Lord, you gave us your word. You made my mouth. You've promised to be with me. And I'm asking that you use this teaching for our good and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See if you recognize this tune. The impossible mission was always found in a phone booth, a vending machine, a parked car, or some other random but everyday location. The tape recording, your mission, should you choose to accept it. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. And then, what happened next? This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. And with a puff of smoke, the tape was gone. Jim always accepted the mission, and he never failed. Moses was very reluctant, but eventually accepted. Like Jim, his mission did not fail. But not because he was so great. It was because the Lord equipped him and encouraged him and sent him with his almighty power. The title for my teaching is Our Redeemer Equips, Encourages, and Sends with Power. Now, the basic structure of this talk is to take each of the excuses that Moses has, followed by the Lord's encouragement to him and to us, and to see how each of these point to Jesus. God is full of grace and power, and he calls imperfect, weak people to join him in his work. Let's review a little bit. The setting is the people of Israel were groaning because of their slavery. We saw this at the end of chapter 2. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And what did we learn there? God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Then in Exodus 3, Moses didn't see a tape recorder at a phone booth, but he met Yahweh in a burning bush. The mission was this, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out. Unlike Jim, who always accepted the mission, Moses was not so sure. What was his first excuse? His first excuse was back in Exodus 3, and he said, who am I? And what did we learn the answer was? Moses, you're nobody. And God can use nobodies like us. What's the second excuse? Moses said, who are you? What's your name? And what was the answer? Who is the Lord? The Lord is Yahweh. I am who I am. But how does Exodus 4 open? I think I hear a voice like Eeyore here. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses' excuse number three, 
he knows that God is calling him. But what if he ends up a failure again? But did you notice here that Moses doesn't say what if, but a flat out, what does he say here? They will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Even though a few verses ago in chapter 3, verse 18, God had assured him that they will listen. Moses here shows lack of confidence, instead thinking that the people will remember his past failure when he impulsively thought he could step in and work justice, solve their problems. He knows he messed up. He has not let God's promises in chapter 3 sink in yet. Yahweh has just promised to be with him. So what is Yahweh's encouragement? He gives three signs that all point to his supernatural power and the battle to come with Pharaoh and his so-called gods. God is going to send him with some power. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became what? It became a serpent. All right. I would be a little bit afraid and run from it just like Moses did. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So here, the Lord is sending him with a staff. Now, this is just a simple shepherd's staff, right? It's quite different from what he may have had in Egypt as the son of the Pharaoh, as a prince. In Exodus 3, at the burning bush, Yahweh promised to be with Moses and God's fire is what will lead the people once they come out of Egypt. And here, the staff becomes a sign of God's presence with him and also symbolizes God's authority and his power. It also demonstrates God's sovereignty over creation and animals. So when he throws a staff to the ground, it instantly becomes a snake, life from a stick. Does this remind you of what God did when he created life? back in Genesis, life from nothing. Then when Moses picks it back up again, by the tail, it says, by the tail, what happened? Well, this is impressive, isn't it? This is foreshadowing what the Lord Yahweh will do to Egypt. Yahweh is going to grab the tail. He's going to catch the tail of Egypt, and he is going to do his massive works. In Exodus 4, 14, 4, the Lord said, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So the Lord here is giving Moses a preview of the wonders to come. The snake hardened back into a staff, just like Pharaoh's heart would harden. But what would be the effect on the people of Israel? Well, God's purpose in this sign, did you see that? God's purpose is that they may believe. How does this point to the gospel? 
Well, the Exodus is key to our understanding of redemptive history. Do you remember our connection that we saw back in Genesis? Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, and sin and death ruined the perfect world that God had created. And yet, God had made a promise back in Genesis 3.15. He said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent will not get the final word. The offspring of the woman is Jesus Christ. And he is going to metaphorically grab that serpent by the tail and he is going to destroy him. Colossians 2.15 tells us that he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's the work that Jesus did on the cross for us. And what's the effect on us? Our faith. We believe when we put our faith and our trust in him. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside of his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And so he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to you to or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. So if they don't believe this, the snake and the staff, they may believe this one. Now here, God is showing his power over people and sickness and even death. Yahweh has the power to afflict and to restore instantly. We are going to see this vividly in chapters 7 through 11. He says here, leprous like snow. This may not mean leprosy as we know it, but some form of skin disease that looked white and may have caused flaking of the skin. How does this point to the gospel? In Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, we read a messianic prophecy, a sign. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what else did he do? Healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus also said that he did not come for the healthy, but for the sick, the spiritually sick, the spiritually dead. He came to bring new life and healing. Now, Yahweh goes on and says to Moses, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. This is a preview of plagues to come. There's some irony here because to the Egyptians, right, the Nile River is something sacred, like a god to them. It was a source of life. But remember back to the beginning of Exodus. What would the Israelites associate with the Nile? You remember Pharaoh gave the order 
to drown all the Hebrew baby boys in the river. Well, God would bring justice. This river of life would become a river of death. I read something interesting about Egyptian funerals. The priest who is overseeing the ceremony is literally called a water pourer. And he would pour out liquid on the ground to symbolize human life returning to the underworld. And Moses would be acting essentially here as a funeral director for the nation of Israel as God was bringing judgment on them. But what about the blood? While Egyptians considered blood evil, the river turning to blood would be alarming in just so many ways. Their god of chaos is portrayed in bold red. But for Israel? Leviticus 17.11 tells us, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And then eventually, it's the blood of the lamb over their doorposts that saves the people of Israel. Remember, they were to paint over the doors of their, of their houses with the lamb's blood. How does this point to Jesus? Well, it is the blood of Jesus that saves us. Romans 9, or Romans 5, 8 and 9 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now these three signs all point to God's amazing supernatural power. God is going to send Moses with some power here. Does God encourage us with his power? What were Jesus' last words before he ascended? In Acts 1.8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, was Moses encouraged? Can you hear Eeyore again? But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. He says, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So his excuse number four is, God, I'm not a gifted speaker. I don't have the communication skills that I need to go before Pharaoh. Now, commentators speculate that it could be any one of a number of possibilities here. It could be that he's just making another excuse and he's exaggerating his inability. Uh, it could be that although he learned Hebrew as a little boy, he spent 30 plus years in the palace and another 40 in the wilderness and his Hebrew was understandably rusty. Or even his Egyptian was rusty. But you know, this isn't really the, the likeliest um, interpretation here because Moses states that he says he is not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to me. So God responds, he made his mouth. He made his mouth the way he did. Now, other commentators think that it could be a speech impediment, like a stutter, a fear of speaking paralyzing nervousness. 
Did you know that Pastor John Piper had a serious inability to speak in public? Once he inadvertently said yes to pray at a, uh, at a college gathering, 30 seconds only, and then he prayed in desperation. He said, Lord, if you will get me through 30 seconds without bombing, without my voice choking up and or trembling so bad that everybody is totally embarrassed for me, I will never again, out of fear, say no to a speaking engagement. So it is clear that Moses did not think of himself as a great speaker. But we also know that Acts 7.22 tells us that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and in his deeds. If God could use a stick, he could use the mouth of Moses. Now, the Apostle Paul dealt with accusations about his communication skills as well. Some of them accused him of his letters being weighty and strong, but uh, his speech of no account. And Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 2. He said, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in my weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And now the Lord is going to encourage Moses again. He says, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Yahweh is saying, I made you. I made your mouth. So go. I've already promised that I'm going to be with you. This is huge. If you've ever wondered who, who is ultimately responsible and sovereign over sickness or blindness or whatever, the answer is here in Exodus 4. It is the Lord. How does this point to Jesus? Jesus encountered a man born blind in John 9. He was asked by his disciples, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was blind because God made him blind in order to show his power. His blindness was not about his sin or his parents' sin. God was not punishing this man or blaming him. God's purpose was to show mercy, to show healing to him, both physical and spiritual. God is sovereign over all kinds of blindness. He made our eyes. He made our mouth. He made our ears and our hearts. Yes, brokenness and disability hurts. We wrestle with the problem of pain. 
Satan is real and his flaming darts can be agonizing. We have this encouragement from Paul. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he said, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with who? With the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. What does Paul say then? Therefore, purpose, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, was Moses encouraged that God had created every part, part of him for his glory? Was he emboldened by God's promise to be with his mouth and teach him? Did he answer like Isaiah, who was also called by the Lord, here I am, send me. No, he says, here I am, please, please send someone else. Excuse number five is polite. He says, please, doesn't he? But this still demonstrated a lack of his obedience, even after much encouragement from Yahweh. Moses is not ready to commit. He's not ready to trust and obey. He's still stubborn and reluctant. He just does not want this assignment. So first we see Yahweh's anger. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And yet, he still encouraged him. God overcame Moses' objections, and he sent his older brother to assist him. Here's his encouragement in verses 14 through 16. Is there not Aaron, your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So how does the Lord encourage us? Jesus made this promise. He said, behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. And in John 14, 6, he said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now we see that Moses is finally bound for Egypt. God says, take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. This gives us a bit more insight into one of the reasons Moses was hesitant to go back to Egypt. It was really sweet of the Lord to reassure Moses that it was okay to go back 
And then the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. We might think here um, that Moses would be very eager now to go back. What we see here is that God is going to give him a glimpse of something else that's going to happen. What does God say? The Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do be Pharaoh, do before Pharaoh. He says, all the miracles that I've put in your power, but what's going to happen? But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We might think of a hard heart as one that is cruel, uncaring, no compassion, but it actually means to be determined or resolved. This can be positive or negative, as in a positive determination to stand firm for your convictions, or negatively, an obstinate unwillingness to change direction. We're going to discuss this much more in future weeks. But God is giving Moses the inside scoop here. Moses, you are to say, you are to do all the miracles, all right? And you're going to say everything that I tell you. But the outcome is in my hands, Moses, and here's what's going to happen. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is the first of many times we're going to see this word firstborn here in Exodus. God tells Moses that he is to warn Pharaoh that Israel is his chosen people and that he should let them go or the consequences will be devastating. He would lose his firstborn son. As the story unfolds, we're going to see plague after plague of judgment on Egypt and warning after warning. And we are going to spend more time learning about hardening later. We also read in Exodus 11 that Moses issues one last warning before the final plague. And this warning is much worse than what we see here in Exodus 4. Here he says that every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be such a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. This is what will be known as Passover. And we're going to study it in a few weeks when we come to Exodus 12 and 13. Yahweh is our mighty redeemer. He's also the father here who ransoms his firstborn son out of slavery in Egypt. And if you know the rest of the story of the Bible, you know that this son, Israel, later wanders away. Hosea 11, 1 and 2 puts it this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And eventually, 
this son ended up in exile. Eventually, though, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to redeem us. And eventually this son, Jesus, is brought out of Egypt like a replay of Exodus. And rather than wandering away, he obeys perfectly. And we get his righteousness credited to us. Galatians 4 puts it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to what? To redeem those who were under the law. So that, here's purpose again, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Isn't this great news? All right, now we arrive at a really tough text. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Commentators say that these verses continue to baffle them. That's one of the most puzzling stories in the whole Bible. And that this text is very difficult. Now, I'm not going to attempt to answer all the possible interpretations, but I just want us to think here, what, what's going on? Whose life is in danger? A lot of commentators will say, and you might have seen comments in your Bible that says that the Lord tried to kill Moses, but it's not clear in the Hebrew. It's just him. The Lord met him. It could be one of his sons. It doesn't say Let's look again at the context. In previous verses, Moses had just been told to go warn Pharaoh that his firstborn son may be killed because Israel is who? Israel is God's firstborn son. And now we learn that one of Moses' sons here says, actually, it says her son, right, has not been circumcised. And circumcision is the sign of the covenant, which marks the sons of Israel. And we're not told why, but because Moses has not obeyed God's commandment, his uncircumcised son is under the same judgment as the Pharaoh's son. We've seen excuse after excuse from Moses, so it shouldn't surprise us that Moses doesn't have his personal family life in order. As the author of this book, though, isn't it remarkable that he exposes his reluctance to obey? So here's another time that we have a woman, Zipporah here, in this case, stepping in to rescue Moses. You remember how he was saved by the midwives, his sister, and his mother back in the early chapters of Exodus? Here Zipporah circumcised her son, and then she covered Moses with the blood, it says she touched his feet with it. And she talks about the blood here, bridegroom of blood. This points ahead to the instructions for the Passover. You remember when a lamb's blood would cover the doorposts of their houses? 
we're going to learn in chapter 12 about the requirements to participate in the Passover feast. The Lord was very specific about no uncircumcised sons partaking in the Passover. All right, let's go on to verses 27 through 30. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words so that, or the, all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Here we see obedience, don't we? And it's interesting to note here that in uh, Aaron here is 83 years old and he's a slave in Egypt. He could somehow escape and go meet his little brother who's 80. And maybe it is that 83 year olds were not making bricks anymore, but anyway, in God's timing and God's place, they meet here at the mountain of God. Why Aaron? Well, Aaron may have been respected within the Hebrew community and Moses, well, if anyone remembered him, it probably wasn't good. And he would likely be seen as an outsider raised in Pharaoh's palace. Remember, he looked like an Egyptian when he sat down at the well. And now he's been a shepherd for 40 years in Midian. So Aaron here is able to assemble all the elders of the people of Israel. And then Aaron spoke to them. Aaron is serving here as a trusted mediator, kind of like what Barnabas did for Saul when he met the skeptical believers in Jerusalem for the first time in Acts 9. And the result here, the people believed. They believed. This is wonderful. When, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Let's look back now at the beginning of Exodus 4. Turn back your page. What did Moses start with? He said, they will not believe. Yet the chapter ends with the good news that they did believe. They understood that Yahweh saw their affliction. He heard their cries. He remembered his covenant and he knew. And not only did they believe, but they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord, their deliverer. They were in awe of their redeemer who is mighty to save. So mission impossible had begun. Moses had finally chosen to accept it. He would not be caught or killed. And Yahweh would not disavow any knowledge of Moses' actions. God's word will never self-destruct. And he did not say, good luck, Moses. No, he promised that he would be with Moses and Aaron. He would teach them what to say. His power would go before them. And the impossible mission would not fail. And it was not because he was so great. It was because Yahweh equipped him, Yahweh encouraged him, and Yahweh sent him with his almighty power. God is full of grace and power. And if he calls imperfect, reluctant, weak people to join him in his work, what is our calling as believers? 
He calls us to share the good news of redemption in Jesus. Our rescue doesn't come from Moses, who stands before Pharaoh with a what? He stands there with a staff in his hands. But our rescue comes from Jesus, our Redeemer, who stretched out his arms and died on the cross to take our sins and to take the wrath of God on our behalf. Now, some will believe and others will have hardened hearts. When some scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign, he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Something greater than Jonah is here. The sign for us, the sign for us is the empty tomb. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for calling us, for equipping us, encouraging us, sending us with your Holy Spirit. We know that without you, we can do nothing. Would you fill us with your grace and your power? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.